I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hey everyone, it's me, your good friend Sarah Century, and I am here to give you a heads up that this week's episode, we have our very first guest sound editor with Nathaniel Hubbard of the Tighten Up the Defense podcast. Tighten Up the Defense is great if you like the Defenders or the Teen Titans or you would like to like them or you don't really like them, but you want to hear about them, which is sometimes I'm in all three groups. So I enjoy it a lot. You should check it out. I've guessed it on the podcast many times, so you can use that as an entryway. That's okay. Everybody needs an entryway. So yeah, check it out. And thanks a lot to Nathaniel Hubbard for jumping in and doing the sound editing while Kate Warner is off and enjoying working overtime at her day job. Sorry, Kate. Welcome to another edition of Bitches on Comics. I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy that our guest is here as well. I'm Sarah Century, but I'm going to go ahead and ask our esteemed guests to introduce themselves, please. Hello. Hello. This is uh, Heather Einhorn, co-founder and CEO of EEP Universe. Yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) That's it. That's the intro. (laughs) There you have it. If somebody hasn't heard of EEP as of yet, then how how would you describe it? So EEP is a uh, creative house. We produce platform agnostic uh, intellectual property that's focused on female forward and inclusive characters. So, you know, I know that's like a lot of words. Uh, so basically <laughs> what it means is like we produce awesome stories. Um, these are the stories that and the characters that I wanted to see growing up. 
So it's like badass ladies doing badass things. Uh, it's like, I guess, I guess the, the, the simplest way to describe what we do. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of genre hopping, right? Because there are so far podcasts in mostly the sci-fi vein, I guess. Is that something that's very intentional? Were you setting out immediately just to be like, I am doing genre fiction and that's like what we're here for? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we play in all different categories, but, you know, I, I come from uh, DC Comics, Legendary Pictures, so genre, sci-fi, horror, fantasy, that's where we live. That's where we love to live. And luckily for us, there's so many amazing stories that haven't been told with female inclusive characters in that space. So we really feel like it's just like our little playground <laughs> where we can jump in and do cool stuff. Yeah, that's something that comes up a lot with me because I always kind of have to remember that whenever I was reading comics to begin with, it was the 90s. And then mm -hmm. uh, up until like 2015, it was still a rarity for women <laughs> to be popping up, right? It, on like credits list of comic books. Not to dismiss like all of the people who are in those spaces and working in those spaces. But I remember kind of looking back around like New 52 era and I was like, is Gail Simone like the only woman <laughs> that was writing for DC like at that time? And it's like literally like 2012, right? I always have to kind of put it in perspective because I feel that over the last few years, there's been such an explosion of incredible stories. A lot of, you know, women, queer people, trans people doing a lot of fascinating, interesting kind of groundbreaking work. And people are actually hearing about it, I think, a little bit more than I did whenever I was a kid, right? So it's like, it's almost something where I have to remind myself that this is all kind of new and can easily go away, right? So we like kind of have to keep it going is what I think. But yeah, what oh. do you think about that? Oh, 100%. I mean, we look at the landscape now and, and we founded EEP in, uh, in 2017 and the exactly what you're saying, like the increase in characters and creators in this space is because everyone is continuing to move it forward. But same thing when I was at DC Comics, not only was it like rare to have like multiple women in the room at the same time, but the biggest thing and, and one of the things that we've tried to overcome here at EEP is that the female characters that were introduced were ultimately just derivative of male characters, right? So when there would be a female character, and I, I, I hate to, to hate on specific characters, um, you know, because they're all amazing. But like you get the, you know, the She-Hulks of the world and we love She-Hulk and that's mm -hmm. awesome. But ultimately She-Hulk is literally Hulk with, it's like Girl Hulk, right? Or like, you know, Spider-Girl or Bat-Girl even. And these are all characters that I personally love, but can we get like our own? Like, <laughs> like, like that was sort right. of, that was sort of the initial premise of EEP was like, yeah, we know the audience is going to be out there but let's create these absolutely like original characters, which still there's more, way more work to be done to your point. Cause at any moment, I always feel like the other shoe can drop and we can yeah. go back to <laughs> like recently it was announced that Jennifer Gardner was going to be back as Electra in like the Deadpool three movie. Right. And originally, I don't know if everyone sort of remembers, but Electra used to be the case study that people would cite to say, well, female action adventure doesn't work. Just look at Electra. Right. So we get one. But meanwhile, <laughs> like there's so many like male driven action genre sci-fi things that just come out and flop, but women get one. And then it's like, well, Electra's dead, <laughs> you know? So yeah, anyway, I mean, yeah. the Wonder Woman movie just happened, <laughs> you know, like 
It's one of those things. Or, you know, you're hearing always about how dismissive people are towards like the Wonder Woman line. I think I've heard that a lot is, you know, obviously there's been so many great creators. I think that Wonder Woman just had a completely untouchable, pretty much like five or six year run. Like there was just like great creator after great creator happening. And it just seemed like one run led so well into the next. And it seems like this should be kind of a normal thing for a monthly book that's been going (laughs) since like the 40s. But it's so kind of interesting because it's like, no, you don't understand being a Wonder Woman fan, right? Because there's times where people write Wonder Woman where it seems like they hate her. And you're just like, that's so bizarre. And I think that just recently we have a Wonder Woman movie. And that to me is just wild because she's always been considered one of the three big DC names, right? Mm -hmm. And it's just like, of course, we had to have like 25 Batman (laughs) movies and, you know, all of these takes on Superman and they get all of these animated spinoffs and everything. And it just takes so long for Wonder Woman to get like a movie. And it's (laughs) like- We have to wait that long. Yeah, for every character. You know, because Wonder Woman's like the one of the oldest DC comics. Yeah. Series. So we have to wait literally like 50 huge. years. She's oh so God. famous. She's world famous. She is widely recognizable across the planet, you know, and it, it just took a really long time. And then I don't know, like the Wonder Woman, I think more than any other main character that's been going that long her book is really uneven. You know, you read from the beginning to now and it's uneven. (laughs) Like there's so many greats and then there's so many kind of bummer town moments. But that kind of is what I was going to say about She-Hulk, Spider-Woman, you brought them up and it's like, yeah, now both of those characters have very distinctive personalities, but it took like whole original series with them (laughs) for those Mm -hmm. personalities to come out, right? Years and years and years to even get series Mm -hmm. is like all that right it's just like i'm doing hulk stuff because nobody really (laughs) took the time to figure out what my character was gonna be and then at the very end of the series she's like actually i think i kind of like being a hulk and that's like bam there's her personality now we know who she is like she's different from bruce because she likes being hulk (laughs) but it just took like so long to get to that place so i always think about that Mm-hmm, and it's absolutely. Like, but but uh, to your point, you know, it's like as much as that is a challenge and an ongoing challenge and ongoing worry, it, that just kind of does inspire you more to be like, okay, well, I'm just going to keep it going. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's, I, I mean, and to your point earlier, it's like the work is certainly not done, right? Because you have these, what we now think of iconic characters that literally, whereas the male versions of those characters right off the bat have personalities and, and coherent backstories and, the, the, you know, you have the female characters that are just like, I'm the lady of that, right? Yeah. And so that's not, you know, a fully fledged character that would be compelling and and just basically have their own story and their own vibe. It's really funny because I'm obviously a Barbie and Ken on the brain right now. In, yes. <laughs> the, in the opposite vein, where Ken was basically just the accessory to Barbie, right? And it's a lot of these, you know, female derivative characters feel like accessories. And then when finally you get like a standalone character like Wonder Woman, and I could talk about Wonder Woman for like an entire separate podcast. Same here. You know, um, <laughs> that's, that's like, it. <laughs> right? Like that's like, I'm there's sh- like a, a whole journey, you know, and yeah. then it takes us literally like 50 years or whatever to get the movie. But ultimately, I think one of the reasons why the character is so uneven throughout the years and even throughout the, I mean, I, I know it won't be uh, controversial to say that Wonder Woman 84 
you know, left a little bit on the table for me, you know, a little bit, yeah. a little bit of that down there. And I think, you know, one of the reasons, and this circles back to what we do at EEP, is that inherently the creation of the character at its base level, as you know, has like, there's a lot of like problematic stuff that is mm-hmm. a part of Wonder Woman's inherent character creation. And so, mm. you know, if the only <laughs> characters that are getting greenlit were literally created 50 years ago by men with various issues underlying them, or they're derivative of male characters, it certainly leaves an opening for, like, fresh female characters that don't have that baggage. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I, feel, I just, everything that we've done at EEP supports that. thesis. That was the original thesis of EEP, and, and, and I think we've been supported in some of the successes we've had, which is great. Yeah, I was actually going to say that it's interesting you bring up Wonder Woman 84 because not to offer like a stark comparison, but I was going to say that a lot of the nostalgia, I think, of that film fell flat for a lot of people. But what I've enjoyed recently about EEP has been that it is like very boldly nostalgic in a way, right? Because there's like kind of uh, these like bright popping colors and like, you know, the fonts and everything, they harken back to a time, right? But then at the same time, it feels very modern. And I think that that's kind of like when you're doing nostalgia stuff, which like a lot of people are doing, and I'm not going to say that EEP is nostalgia like that. I, I don't think that that would really hold up just that there are nostalgic elements, I guess. And I was going to say, too, that it's kind of interesting because the way that you pull off nostalgia, right, is by tying it to the current moment. And I think that that's something that Barbie's doing really successfully. So I wanted to ask if you had any thoughts on that, because, you know, it's just such an interesting thing. A lot of times people view nostalgia in the market as being kind of like the bad guy or something or like the elephant in the room nobody wants to talk about. It can be kind of great, though, right? <laughs> like, Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think nostalgia is the emotional secret sauce that when placed into an original concept, when you make the like stew of what comprises an original concept, I think anybody that claims that nostalgia is not inherently included in their concept is not living in reality, right? Because we've all consumed media throughout our entire lives. Like one of our podcasts was Daughters of DC, and we wrote the main character, James Parker, as a like badass secret vigilante hacker situation, right? And so how could I deny that Oracle is not somehow intertwined? Like I've consumed that content. I love that character. Like how could I say that like, my love of that character and of that girl in general doesn't inform my like badass lady hacker character, you know, like, so yeah, I think, I think nostalgia mixed with fresh, you know, and I think uh, there are shows that have done this very, very well. Like Stranger Things is the, is the first thing that, that comes to mind in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, mass media that we could all immediately recognize can pluck the elements of nostalgia while layering on a fresh story. And yeah, I, I, I mean, our, our other podcast, which is also a book series, Lethal Lit, I mean, like, I'm a big fan of Sherlock Holmes and detective stories and also of the of the Scream franchise, you know? So right. how can we, uh, the wink and the nod that Scream gives, the original OG Scream, you know, how can we not deny that that horror, that genre of horror is not a part of horror concepts that we see today? So, oh, so yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, Scream is ridiculous, right? Because, I mean, I just got finished writing... 
I'm doing a scream zine right now because I had a piece that it just, it didn't go anywhere. Basically there was editorial stuff and everything that is 2023 basically. So I wrote this big old piece and then it turned out it didn't go anywhere. And I was like, I cannot let this go. I just got finished watching the entire franchise, including (laughs) the TV series all over again. And so I was like, I have to do something with this. So I'm doing a zine about it right now that I've been pulling together. I think I'll end up announcing it very soon but yeah it's basically that i was like looking back over it and i was like it's so wild how it's such a derivative nostalgic movie but it's in in and of itself there was never anything like that movie like that movie is just like truly brilliant they were using you know that great script that great director who we all know and love and it's just like something about it just clicks just so well because I watched it as a teenager and I was kind of just like oh I wonder if this holds up and then you know kind of went back into it and it's like yeah it does (laughs) it's like this is such a good movie and like the sequels are honestly really good too you know like it kind of if you watch them all in a row like I did you start to be kind of like okay all right (laughs) it's getting a little camp yeah yeah, I get it I get it you know but but it's really good I mean they're all really good and worth watching multiple times I think and they have different things to say I think that something that they do really smart is every single time they're tying it to something for instance not to spoil a movie that's been out for actually kind of a while now but the most recent scream (laughs) was commenting on nostalgia right and like kind of how bad that could be and then like the last you know it's like they keep kind of changing up the theme and it's always something that is like very current like people who only want their franchise to do the same thing again and again or something like that like that's been the last couple movies which is totally different than just the nerds who watch too many horror films in like 1995 or whatever right but it still keeps with the theme you know it's just like I'm glad to hear that that's been an influence because I've just been thinking about that franchise a lot, like while also listening to EP podcasts. So I think I'm just maybe on like a vibe right now with like all of this. Well, who knows if it's, you know, the cart and the horse, but I mean, if you're, right. if you've been listening to the EEP stuff and you're thinking about Scream, then you're like in my brain, right? Because, these are the, <laughs> because this is a hundred percent. I mean, and these are, I, I think that, you know, even things like Indiana Jones, which even at the time when it came out was nostalgic for the action heroes of the 1940s when it came out right. in the eighties. Right. And, and, and I think that was a fresh take, like nostalgia mixed with something fresh at the time and obviously you know uh, as as things as things move through the years as we've seen with the recent indiana jones things might necessarily not hold up for that period of time but horror and i think the way scream introduced it's one part nostalgia one part winking at the audience and one part media commentary and you know in particular for lethal lit like that was the same headspace we were in when we were creating and producing that one you know, and with that one, it's the lit killer and all of the murders are staged after scenes from classic literature. And, you know, you have Tig Torres, who's the detective who just loves books and she like knows books so well that only she can crack the case, you know, mm-hmm. which is, you know, not only teen detective, but also horror where you have, you know, I mean, I don't need to tell you, it's a, the idea of the final girl and what gives her the superpower, the ability to basically overcome, you know, Freddy Krueger or, you know, take your pick of whichever villain in any of these horror movies. But there's something sort of like super about that final girl that gives her the ability to sort of escape the killer and basically solve the case, right? Because the police are always bumbling 
you know, whether it's uh, Ned Campbell or Jamie Lee Curtis, you know. Oh, yeah. They're They're useless in the Scream franchise, right? Like, (laughs) again and again, like, the cops are just sitting in their car and they get killed, like, really fast. And even comment, like, oh, no, I think we're going to die. The cops always die in these movies. Oh, man. I mean, that's, but that's, you know, (laughs) YA in general, if you're doing YA correctly, right, I always feel like the adults are idiots Yep. And the kids are the <laughs> smartest people in the room. And if somebody pitches us a YA concept, we're creating a YA concept where the adults get to come in and ultimately save the day. That to me is totally missing the mark. And I think a lot of the best horror movies, you know, we sometimes we don't think of horror as necessarily being YA, but it is because ultimately oh, totally. <laughs> the police are boneheads, you know, yeah. and the teachers and all the adults ultimately get murdered and the kids always <laughs> somehow save the day. Right. So, well, and also, yeah. isn't it that like in the 80s, if you, I grew up in the 80s, like I was born in 1983. So it's basically just like, you know, every children's movie from that era, like we're all horror movies for sure. Like Lab Labyrinth is definitely a horror movie. Horrifying. <laughs> like, horrifying. I can't watch Labyrinth. It's too, it's, it's, it's to me, Labyrinth is scarier than Scream. <laughs> it's for, really for scary. Sure. Sure. I mean, for it's sure. terrifying. The scene where he's like pulling her through that, like the bubbles or whatever, like that is like, uh, I'll never get over it. But, you know, return to Oz, Watership Down, you know, it's so just like there's the list goes on. Everything that I watched as a kid, I used to love the Japanese cartoon Unico, and Unico is so messed up. <laughs> like, they're all horror. And it's just like, it's an unambiguously like a horror movie, right? So I think, you know, that might be aimed for slightly younger, but I think it's the same with YA. There's so much horror in YA. I mean, I grew up uh, in the 80s as well, and I can tell you that the stuff that we were allowed to consume, which is (laughs) truly like the Brave Little Toaster. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Truly could Just horrifying. Like, like, oh, my God. Like, what? Like, this is absolutely... There was this scene, I think I'm traumatized by it, where... The whole gang winds up at a junkyard. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I knew you were going to say this scene. I yeah. knew it. <laughs> yeah. And the cars are singing a little song about who oh, they yeah. are. You know, like I was, uh, I was in Getting the Indy crushed. 500. I was this. I was that. And then literally you watch the car get smashed into a cube. Like they're murdering these cars. Uh-huh. Right in front of it. Like they, they give the car a personality for 30 seconds and then literally murder it in front of the children. And then the toaster is about to go down the conveyor belt or whatever it is. But uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. How you, did they make that movie and like think that we weren't going to grow up to be skeptical of crass consumerism (laughs) (laughs) you can't get away with that you know nowadays because that would be flagged as being something that's that i mean it and it 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 should be it should have been flagged because clearly i'm still (laughs) thinking about it right but but yeah i mean i think you know uh what was horror what is horror i think that there's a whole other you know podcast there but i think of everything that we do as genre but like I said, like, it's like, you know, superpowers don't necessarily have to be like, oh, I fell into a vat of, of toxic waste or I have a, a lasso of truth, you know, which right. sort of feels dated at this point. Like Jamie Lee Curtis, freaking like surviving every single one of those Halloween movies. <laughs> like that's her superpower. Like she's a survivor. Like, there you go. Like she had clearly has some magic to her that she mm-hmm. can survive or, you know, even Nev Campbell or whatever. But yeah, no, I, I certainly think horror... You know, well, actually, no, actually, I'll, I'll take that back because 
you know, I've recently, since I just had a baby, I've been rewatching some of the older Disney stuff as well. And there's some, I mean, the first thing they do is kill off all the parents. So, right. I mean, ton of horror in the Disney stuff as well. So what are you, what are you going to do? It's a little bit, of, it's everywhere. Oh yeah. I mean, that's it. It's like, of course, watching Bambi like absolutely wrecked me as a kid, like in a way that I think I'm probably never going to recover from since I'm like 40 and I'm still really concerned, you know? I mean, I have like seven pets in my house right now. So clearly like it taught me to have care, I guess. Because it's like, you know, I mean, the hunters are really the villains in that. And I don't necessarily, I mean, I'm vegan, but I don't necessarily <laughs> think that hunters are villains, right? I'm just like, I'm literally just saying ways that Bambi changed my life. <laughs> because it's just like, oh, yeah, now I'm vegan. But, you know, I am just always kind of just amazed at how kind of devastating it was. Of course, Bambi, whenever it first came out, bombed, right? Because everybody was like, this is depressing. <laughs> like, yeah. why are you showing this to children? But by the 80s, everything had come back around. So it was okay for me to watch it. <laughs> and cool. so I don't know. It's interesting. It became a classic after a while. But it's interesting that that movie almost like bankrupted Disney. Like Disney might not exist now because of Bambi almost. Because that's just bad decision making. It's the same thing as Brave Little Toaster. I mean, you're literally like murdering animals in front of children. It's worse than cars, actually, because animals are, are living beings. I mean, some people love their cars, but like animals right. are living beings. <laughs> But even the later Disney stuff, I, I would say, you know, and it's different because, you know, there, there's classic horror, there's horror that, you know, where there's a killer chasing the final girl, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's what we would sort of think of as more classic. But I was actually saying to uh, my uh, husband, Adam, recently, because we were watching a bunch of the classic Disney movies, that some of the things that happen, you know, in Beauty and the Beast or even The Little Mermaid. Those are horrific, like traumatic events. Yeah. Mostly happening to the female characters, you know, like, so it's like, hey, Belle, either we're going to lock your father up forever or you have to like be a prisoner in this castle. And then Belle like escapes the castle and comes back to town. And it's, I mean, it's just literally, it's trauma after trauma after trauma, <laughs> yeah. mostly, mostly on these female characters. And it's because obviously all the Disney stuff is based on the classic fairy tales, which were, you know, written again, same issue written by men, not even 50 years ago, hundreds of years ago or whatever, you know, the grim fairy tales. And I was like, this is, <laughs> there's something really bonkers about all of this. <laughs> you know, poor Ariel, she doesn't even have any lines in that movie. Oh yeah. She got yeah. three lines. Just and, and she has to convince Eric to fall in love with her without speaking. Like, I don't know, feeling, it's feeling a little questionable. I hate to hate on Disney, <laughs> but it's feeling a little questionable. <laughs> and they kind of cleaned it up from the original too which is kind of hilarious because it's like this is questionable <laughs> and it's like oh God, you read the yeah. original fairy tale and you're just like this is worse <laughs> oh yes <laughs> the og kind of right the disney versions yeah. that are that are problematic in their own ways are, are the cleaned up versions of the original <laughs> versions you're totally right yeah which you're are totally already right. the cleaned up versions of some folktale right so it's mm -hmm. just like oh man so yeah, I'm going to say kids have been consuming really messed up media for a very long time. Sometimes I think it's a little questionable. Sometimes I think it simply made me who I am today. <laughs> and so, you know, how questionable can I find it in a way? Some critical thinking skills have come from this. You know, there's times where it's like they're warning you against trusting total strangers sometimes, which can be a good thing when you're a kid like me who just wanted to be everybody's bud or whatever. <laughs> but oh, totally. yeah, it's just always kind of interesting, right? 
right um so all right this is all great i'm i want to now come back for the disney podcast like come back for the wonder woman podcast <laughs> we have some yeah. some side projects now to work on but right. I wanted to talk about the timeline for EEP because you said that it started in 2017. I think I only discovered EEP maybe about a year ago. So I don't think I quite have the timeline. So where did you all start and how did the flow go? Like, how are you from 2017 to today? Kind of what <laughs> this yeah. is a hard one probably to sum up and like, again, you know, like, oh, how do I sum up like the last like six years whenever there's been like 400 world disasters as well, you know? But yeah, how, right. how have things been? <laughs> right. Don't worry. The media doesn't need to traumatize the next generation of children. They're going to be traumatized all on their own, right? Right. Oh my God. No, the, uh, well, I, I'll try to, I'll try to summarize it as, as quickly as I can. It's a long and windy journey. I mean, originally, I'll just I'll go back even a little further to just just sort of set it up a little bit more. Like I worked oh, for, yeah. for DC Comics and then uh, moved out to LA for a little while to work for Legendary Pictures. Between you know Legendary and DC, obviously, I, I worked on Batman. You know, for probably upwards of ten years. I was lucky enough to be at Legendary during the Dark Knight Rises era, during Pacific Rim era, during Godzilla era. So got to work on some really really iconic franchises, but. Again, like circling back to the problem that EEP was founded to solve was, you know, these are, again, like, I love them. These are genre classics, but it's very dude-driven, very, you know, straight white male. And, you know, these were not, I mean, actually tying in very nicely to what we're talking about, these were not the characters that I saw growing up, the characters that I would have loved the next generation to experience, right? Because we can have female heroes, even female heroes in horror projects, but remove the like problematic misogyny that we see in a, in a lot of the, the stuff we grew up with, right? Right. So EEP was founded with the premise that, hey, like there is a market, right? And this was, again, even a couple of years ago, I was still fighting, you know, in the room. It's, it's <laughs> right. less of a fight today, which is great. Like we're doing what we set out to do, but it was, it was founded just based on the idea that there is an actual market, like a business. There's a business that could surround these characters, but for various reasons, it's just been the same legacy characters over and over again with the same, basically the same stories, you know, regurgitated. So we founded EEP with that premise and it's, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. So we were just, we were going to be platform agnostic. I came from comics, but then worked in movies and Legendary launched Legendary TV. And then we launched Legendary Comics. I was a part of the launch there as well. So I really had a chance basically through the Batman lens to understand the way a character, a piece of IP, when constructed correctly, can really travel across platforms. So Batman could be a comic. Batman could be a live action TV show. Batman could be an animated TV show. Batman could be a movie. And also if constructed correctly, and stop me if this is getting all too, a little, a little too in the weeds, but you know, when constructed correctly, an IP can also be aged up and down, you know? So really, mm -hmm. you know, you can have uh, Brave and the Bold, you can have, you know, Chris Nolan Batman, you can have emo Robert Pattinson Batman, you know, it's, there's so many different versions of that character because the character is what we call stretchy and can sort of travel between the different avenues and different platforms. So these right. were the types of IPs that we were looking to create. I had known for a while that I wanted to go out and sort of like not be a part after working for basically DC and Warner Brothers and Legendary for a good while, we'll say. <laughs> a hot second. I knew I wanted to go out and be a little bit more entrepreneurial and, and, and sort of do my own thing and, and, and take a shot at it, you know? So at least 
if it didn't work or whatever, like I, I wouldn't be sitting in the corporate office being like, I would have, could have, should have, you know, life's too short. Mm-hmm. I'm young. Let's go for it. And so I was riding the F train because I was living in Brooklyn at the time after I founded EEP and I started getting into podcasts. And so we just founded the company. We were just sort of figuring out our direction and, and, and all that good stuff and noodling around, circling around different ideas. And I got really into podcasts because the F train just never showed up. Um, <laughs> so it was really interesting to me because podcast was this, it was like, what's old is new again. And then I started circling back to like the radio plays, the, the oh, Superman yeah. radio hour, War of the yep. Worlds and all these sort Love of it. genre podcasts. And it was like, oh my gosh. And, and, and you know, that whole, uh, everything I just said about Batman, I never included audio in, in that wasn't in it. It was comics, TV, film, animated, you know, but where was audio? And audio was sitting here the whole time, right? So, you know, got a meeting with, uh, with iHeart. And this is in 2018. They were just sort of dipping their t- podcast. We're just becoming, a, it was like, oh my God, podcast, podcast, podcast. But all the podcasts coming out were nonfiction. And so I went to iHeart and I said, listen, I have this idea for a podcast about a teen detective who has a podcast and it's called Lethal Lit. And I was like, just, I, I just, I'll never forget. I was so nervous to do the pitch, um, you know, wrote the whole pitch, did the pitch. And it's like, you know, you know, when you're like, it's like the magic of like the, the, those days where it's like, woo, like sprinkle glitters. And I, they just absolutely loved it. And it totally made sense because it, it was a podcast in the vein of, because Serial was very popular at the time, which then circles back to Scream, right? Because it's the idea of media commentary oh, totally. in, infused <laughs> with horror. And then obviously putting our coat of paint on it means it's going to be like badass female YA vibes. So, you know, all those things mixed together. They loved it. They pretty much bought it in the room, which was just the best day ever. Lethal It came out. It was the first YA fiction podcast, like, ever from iHeart. So that was a huge accomplishment. And it actually did really, really well. It was, we were number four with Lethal Lit on the overall charts, not the fiction charts, the, like, overall charts. It was, like, Lethal Lit and then, like, NPR. You know, so it was really, yeah. really exciting. <laughs> and then from there, that's when the ball starts rolling down the hill because you realize that it's like, hey, we have something here. Because there is an audience. That's our case study of, hey, it's not just talk. like. Here's a character. Here's a concept. It's fully executed. And I'll never forget it because we recorded Lethal Lit. It's different. And, and, I, and again, there could be a, a whole a whole other podcast just about the, the podcast fiction production and how that differs from nonfiction production. But it was, you know, yeah. we, we, we flew in the director from L.A. We had a table read with the cast and, you know, all that good stuff. And, and literally was we recorded Lethal Lit in a heat wave in New York. The air conditioning broke in the recording studio. <laughs> it was like, like, I can't even tell you. I went to Home Depot and bought a, like a fan just and had it just on my face in the producer room because it was just <laughs> so crazy. But yeah, just an amazing experience. We work with amazing actors, voice actors, directors, writers. We, we use a writer's room approach for all of our podcasts. So typically we come up with the concept in-house, but then we, we invite, it's very similar to comics, actually. We create the characters, we create the bones of the IP, and then we invite other writers to come and join us and write different episodes of whichever the podcast is. But yeah, Lethal Lit started it. And from there, we did an entire slate of uh, fiction podcasts lethal lit and see you in your nightmares so we put full horror on that daughters of dc our political thriller nikki fix time travel and uh up next is bump set juliet which is our first 
a romance, what we call it, like romance action, because it's a sports drama, because it's, uh, and it's actually an LGBTQ <laughs> sports drama with two rival girls volleyball teams, you know, loosely based on Romeo and Juliet. And yeah, we right. just, we just sort of started <laughs> producing podcasts. And then at the same time, obviously pursuing, you know, graphic novels and web comics, because we've, and stop me if this is getting a little a little too long. Oh, but, no, no. This but, uh, is, uh, you're doing exactly what I yeah. wanted you to do because I was okay. like, listen, okay. I need I need like a baseline, <laughs> right? Like this makes sense because I have mine. I like have been able to like pick and choose over the last year, you know, but you know, this is great. So please continue. <laughs> okay. You just stop me anytime. But, uh, but yeah, okay. while we were, do- while we were doing all the, all the podcasts, you know, and, and again, just remaining platform agnostic and, and really wanting to just continue to produce IP in different medias. We signed the first ever fiction graphic novel deal with MIT. We had uh, this idea, it was called the Curie Society. It's a secret society of, of female scientists. It's basically like Mission Impossible with STEM. And, you know, we brought that idea around and we never, we got introduced to MIT Press and we thought they're never going to <laughs> they're never going <laughs> to make this because <laughs> Mary Carey didn't actually start a secret society. Um, you know, we like made this up and uh, they were like, no, we love it. And so, um, yeah, so we did the Carey Society with MIT and we also have uh, same. We, we continued with our graphic novels and we have a deal with uh, Little Brown. So coming up is uh, the Carey Society. The first volume came out and did very, very well. And the next volume, volume two, is actually coming out in spring of 2024. So that's that's incredibly exciting. And there's a third volume coming up right after that. So there's going to be three volumes now of the Carrie Society. Um, and we're <laughs> we're obviously adapting it. There's not too much I could talk about um, on that front right now, but uh, there's there's the Curie Society will continue on um, past graphic novels for sure. The same thing with Lethal Lit actually, and then with Little Brown. The first book out of our deal with Little Brown is called Absolute Zeros, which is like a bad news bears at space camp, like really cute, really fun situation. Also coming out spring of next year, and there'll be volume two of Absolute Zeros as well. And we have a bunch of other books coming out with Little Brown as well. And then, yeah, in the meantime, uh, we also got into animation because, yes. you know, because who needs You sleep? did not have enough going on, <laughs> <Yes>. and so... <laughs> Because it's it's the character we we build out these IPs and then we say well where where would this best like live you know and mm-hmm. and we just love to play in different platforms and so we had this idea for like a, a K-pop star who um, basically was trapped in an interdimensional music prison uh, and as I say the logline out loud now it sounds just as awesome as when we first <laughs> when we first created this character and her name is Hexel and Hexel um, she's a webtoon. And she has animated music videos. Uh, you can check her out. It's free Hexel. And Hexel also, we we uh, we actually produced several original K-pop songs to go along with this IP. So if you go to Spotify and check out free Hexel, she's got over half a million streams on her latest K-pop album. So these are all the things that we do. Uh, we just, you know, have fun and do <laughs> crazy stuff. So that's, <laughs> I guess that's really what EEP is about, to be honest. Yeah, um, I was thinking about this because it's something um, like one of the things that we do at Bitches on Comics is we have a publishing company and we started this by doing PDFs, right, of these anthologies. We were doing like a story a day thing every Pride. And so mm-hmm. we would we made these like massive PDF collections <laughs> that you can still buy just for the listeners. Right. But it's like they're uh, on sale at the decodedpride.com website. But 
after that, like we were kind of like, oh, well, we can't just keep doing this because we did it three years in a row. So we all just mm-hmm. started to be like, what else are we going to do? Right. And so uh, we started kind of adapting it to audio because like I also, you know, love the old radio plays and stuff like that. And I listen to tons and tons and tons of podcasts, like just kind of a weird amount of podcasts, actually. Like it's it. too many faves. I have too many faves when it comes to podcasts. But yeah, I've been like kind of thinking about it a lot lately because now uh, obviously our publishing company is still going, but like the idea of kind of branching out to different things. And then I'm starting a production company that does video production. And so I've been thinking a lot <laughs> about kind of multimedia, I guess, right? And yeah. how that is. And yeah, this is like, it's, it, my question for you is basically just you know, you just listed more things than we are doing, actually, which is wild, because usually we're like, wow, we're doing way too many things. And then it's kind of uh, inspirational to hear <laughs> that you're doing actually a few different things, because we haven't gotten into web comics, right? You know, there's like, there's a few things and so, yeah. or animation, right? So yeah. we're not there. But I think that that's just something that's very interesting, because and it's like this, it's almost difficult to exactly word this, because I just kind of want to maybe say, from one publisher to another, or something like, how do you think that being multimedia is, I guess, important? How do you think that it fuels the creativity behind the scenes? Because I think it does. Like, I think the idea of keeping things kind of open-ended for what you might want to do. A lot of people tell you to find one thing and to just stick with it. But I think that the trick to that is to actually do a lot of different things, but to do it in a way where you're brand or whatever like who you are and what your values are is kind of the same across the board right Mm -hmm. so basically like question mark do you think that's correct (laughs) well i'll count there's there's two schools of thought on this right and certainly there are people who are amazing authors right and they'll write 20 books and all of the books are great and they write books right so awesome like like cool good for them like i root for them like be passionate about something, go out and execute it. And as long as the quality is high and you can, and you love what you do, right? Like, awesome. Like do that. That's not me. <laughs> so, and I think it sort of circles back to the, the like, it, everyone's like, well, what's the secret sauce to juggling and, and doing all the different platforms. And I was, and I always say, well, the secret sauce is that I love the challenge of producing, creating and producing in a new platform. So my like enjoyment of that process, I think, is infused into the different IPs that we create. If I didn't love doing what we're doing and juggling all this, like you have to sort of like love the juggle, I guess, you know, if, if that's the kind of person that you are. Because if you do, and again, now this is definitely my personal opinion, I think the best producers today are actually always looking at the next platform and the through line is great storytelling, great characters, and just wanting to make awesome stuff. And the through line is not, I work in comics and we are making comics. I work in podcasts and we are making podcasts. I just never was about that box that you can only do one thing and just be good at that one thing. That's my, that's just the EEP sort of like methodology is the through line is the characters, the stories, the IP, not the platform. But certainly there are, you know, other people who who go the other way. So I don't think there's necessarily a right or, or wrong answer on that it's more just like individual like taste for the juggling versus the like tunnel vision of the one platform but yeah i mean to me especially because we go after younger audiences 
there's always a new platform. There's always a new thing. So the best producers, I think, are flexible, always looking to the future, you know, with a nod to the past. I mean, fiction podcasts are the way we produce them is current (laughs) characters, current stories. But obviously, like Superman Radio Hour, War of the World. I mean, there's there literally there's been radio plays. What's old is is always new again. So when as we move to these future platforms, you know, there's always pieces of the past circling back to our conversation about nostalgia as well. You know, nostalgia isn't not just infused into the stories themselves. It's infused into the platforms of the future as well. So, yeah, I mean, that's just, again, just totally caveat. That's my personal point of view on this. But I love the challenge of being like, ooh, what's this new thing? Here's an IP, but not but not, yes. <laughs> not shoehorning it. One more caveat on this, not shoehorning it, because what happened with podcasts is that all of a sudden, everyone's like, oh, podcast, podcast, podcast. And then you start to get these pitches that you can tell are just television shows that you want to, like, make into, like, it's like oh, a backdoor yeah, yeah. television pilot instead of, like, like Lethal It's one of my favorite examples because it's a podcast about a podcaster. So obviously it makes sense as a podcast, right? right? You know, like a podcast about a group of like skydivers, for instance, would make less sense because <laughs> you How can't you see, see it, right? <laughs> you can't see the skydiving. It's a visual, you know, so that's, I mean, that's a ridiculous, <laughs> yeah. ridiculous example. But, uh, oh, but, but you, you I know. mean, somebody <laughs> could make it work too, right? And that's oh, kind of the thing yeah. with podcasts because Definitely. you really are not necessarily limited. Because I mean, you know, I've mentioned a couple of times that I am obsessed with old radio. Like I've listened to all of the old horror. And I think that that stuff is masterclass. If you want to learn how to tell a story with just dialogue, that is like absolute masterclass stuff. Like I think that writers should pay a lot of attention to those old, like, because you've got what, like Sorry Wrong Number is like maybe one of the most famous ones. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there's just like... uh, so many that I just like can't even start mentioning them now because then we'll just it'll be the you know 1940s horror podcast but (laughs) I just think that that's something where it's like take the extra time and listen to this stuff because you know it's it's a very unique style of storytelling and it also makes it to where you know you really can tell if somebody has like a genuine love for the genre and or if they're like tv pilot or whatever Mm -hmm. because it's just like you recognize just the like classic setups, the classic, you know, tropes of it. But then the fact that like a lot of times whenever people are like, I'm going to do a radio show that's like the old time radio shows, then what that means is, is that they're going to do like a pastiche, right? And it's just like, as we've said a few times in this interview, it's like the important thing about those, the reason that they work so well is that they worked exactly in their moment. So something like Sorry Wrong Number where it's this woman who is kind of alone in her apartment and she keeps hearing like the threats that are coming through on her phone and she knows somebody is going to come get her. Somebody is going to kill her. And she's trying to convince other people of this simply from her bedroom. And so the whole thing just happens in a single room and it's terrifying. Mm -hmm. And the build of it is just incredible. So I think about that a lot because it's just like, that stuff is like underrated masterclass, in my opinion. I just think that that's all stuff for people to pay attention to. So I'm glad that you brought it up because it's stuff that is just so near and dear to my heart as well. But it's important because you're like, you want to make sure that it's something like it has to be great storytelling. It has to be in love with whatever medium. You can choose whatever medium, but you really do have to be in love with whichever one you're choosing because I think people can really tell if you're not, right? 
Totally. I think the passion for whatever the creative piece is, regardless of platform, I think you can tell when a project, like, and it's especially true with the big budget films. I think you can tell when people just sort of gave up midway through and threw their hands in the air and said, listen, you want me to put this thing out? Here it is. You know, versus when people were super yeah. <laughs> like, you know, into the Spider-Verse, like super passionate about the story and the animation and the characters and, oh, all, yeah. that, and all that good stuff versus something that's just like, listen, let's get this thing out. Like, hundred percent. And, and yeah, to your point, the concept should work totally with the platform that you've, you can write a concept and then be like, I would like to make this into a podcast, but then you still have to take the next step and be like the, like, sorry, wrong number. Great example of like, this is a great podcast because there's, again, it's, there's that audio integration into it's a phone call, it's phone calls. Right. So same thing with, with lethal lit, it's a podcaster. So you have the audio component built into the show so it's really it makes sense as a podcast as as sort of like laboring to make the shoe fit you know like hexel it mm-hmm. made sense for us to produce some original songs for that because even though it was an animated ip it was a music driven concept so it made sense to have a song or two to illustrate like what type of music hexel you to sort of fill in that blank for the listeners yeah i really think that especially with the pace with which platforms are changing that yeah, like the best producers are flexible and having fun. And and I think that the only ceiling is really if you're juggling too many things to the point where you start to sacrifice quality. And this is every producer or creator, myself included, right. you know, faces this question of how many people are on the team? How many ju- projects am I juggling? Am I doing too much? And everyone, every person's number is sort of different. You know, all those projects I listed are over the course of like 60, those are some highlights from the past six years, (laughs) you know? So, so I would say like, do all the things, but you don't necessarily need to do all the things at the exact same time. (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh my God. That's a big thing, right? Because we're all always working with teams that are just a little too small, right? Not Mm -hmm. that we're not all giving it our best, but there's only so many people who can only dedicate so many hours and there's only so much money to go around. And those limitations really can make you kind of, you know, just come up with, it's the, uh, the mother of invention or whatever, right? It's like you can come up with incredible stuff. But it is very important to make sure that you kind of have a handle on things because otherwise you're disappointing like a lot of people, right? So it's always something where it's like you kind of have to juggle that responsibility. Hello there. Oh, hi. (laughs) How are you doing today? Well, I just took the biggest drink of coffee, but I think you already knew that. (laughs) Well, that's great. Well, I'm here just to talk about, you know, how great our Patreon is. What's so great about it? (laughs) Well, we talk about a host of things, whether it be comics, movies, people we don't like, people we love, (laughs) animals that we're obsessed with, favorite colors, (laughs) sometimes. Pretty recently we did the Star Trek Christmas special, which was fun because it turns out there's no Christmas in Star Trek, but there is a Christmas carol. So that was fun. That was pretty fun, but I think it was kind of a psyop. <laughs> <laughs> Most of our Patreon specials are maybe psyops. We have the X-Men specials that I've been doing with Priya, and yeah, there's endless, honestly, just endless, so many others, one billion different things that you could 
listen to on our Patreon. And if you want to go there today, then you could go to patreon.com slash queerspec. And there are many different tiers to sign up for. However, if you sign up for any tier, you get everything because we're commies. (laughs) Communism is good, kids. Always remember. (laughs) Tune in for our next Patreon special, the commie special. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so a second ago, you brought up music, and that's great because that was going to be something I wanted to talk to you about in this interview because... We had Cecil Castellucci on here not too long ago. I think it was in March, maybe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Listeners, go go looking through the archive. You'll find it. But whenever we were talking to Cecil, it was basically just like, you have to ask Heather about 90s music. <laughs> and I was like, okay, because <laughs> this is not just a frivolous, let's talk about something, go on a tangent and never come back again. This actually ties into your work pretty strongly, I think, because not just Nikki Fix, but I think with EEP, music is an incredibly important part of every single one of these podcasts that I have listened to. And so I would just love to talk about that because obviously it does make sense that you're going to want to have really good music for a podcast. But I think a lot of times people will just kind of lean into like stock music or something like that, which is no shame, no shame at all, right? But then you can always tell whenever something's been kind of specifically chosen or specifically designed for a certain project, I think, too. And it can really heighten things. So I, I wanted to talk about that. How intentional? Well, 
I don't even have to ask how intentional it is, right? But like, I wanted to ask kind of what is your thought process around music? Why is it so important to these shows? And what do you want to do with it? Like, what are you hoping to achieve with it? Oh my goodness. What a question. <laughs> and thank you so much for noticing because there, you know, the, when you're, when you're creating and producing the amount of detail work that goes into, especially the music on our podcast is it, that's one of the areas, like there's are certain areas where, because there's so many projects, you know, I take more of an executive producer, producer role, you know, high level, making sure the story is great and working with the creative teams as much as is humanly possible to juggle all these different projects. But the music is actually an area that I am very, very, very intimately involved with because it's a real passion of mine. And I just think that if you're going to do a fiction podcast, which is an audio only format, that the that music that is integrated, the music composition, I would say, has to be, I mean, I hate to, to say like, like sex in the city, it's like four ladies and the fifth lady is the city, you know, like with our <laughs> podcast, you know, the music really is a character in each of our shows and it is absolutely critical. It was critical to me that we figure out the budgets on our show, even though we had limited budgets, that we figure out a way to not use stock music because as somebody that, and not everybody is like listening to as many podcasts as you and me, but as somebody <laughs> that listens to podcasts and fiction, like I can tell the, the, the canned stuff from the, the real, the realness. And I just felt it was so important to like bring these characters and stories like to have something original. So yeah, I mean, for each of our podcasts, including Nikki, and we also wrote some original music for Nikki as well, because we, you know, we did Hexel and we just loved it so much. So we just did it for Nikki as well. We had some <laughs> original Nikki Fix music, which was awesome. We work with different composers on each show and just sort of crafted the sound design to, it's really interesting because with, when you're doing audio fiction, the sound design has to not only work on its own, I think, because we use the sound design as interstitials and mood pieces, but I, I'm specifically also focused on using sound design as a complementary tool to the dialogue. And I use the word complementary because I think that I think it's very easy. It's a slippery slope to create this like badass piece that and then when you lay it over the dialogue, it drowns out the actual story, right? So that's why I say right. it's like like a, it's one of the characters. It needs to work in conjunction with the scene, with the story. But yeah, we've worked with different composers on our shows. Uh, right now we're working um, with an amazing composer. His name is Kareem um, on Bump Said Juliet. And we are going for, since that show is set in California, like a Cali sort of like chill vibes, moody situation. Cause it's also, there's a sports drama piece to it. So it's moody sports, Cali vibes, right? And when you're doing sound design for these shows, it's really interesting because not only do you have to articulate the vibe, you know, like for See You in Your Nightmares, we were like isolated horror, you know, mm -hmm. just sort of the, the location piece, the set piece for See You in Your Nightmares is this center that's located on the water. So we wanted to integrate literally the sounds of water, like water elements into the sound design for that show eerie creaks and cranks but then obviously making it it's, there's a musicality to it but it starts with literally the conversation that you and i are having right now it starts with that high level where are we and then what i'll do which is one of my favorite 
things to do in all of these productions is make a playlist. Um, and, and that's probably what Cecil was talking about is like, because we also for Nikki, it was really funny because we each made our own because music was such a big part of that one as well made our own playlists and her playlist and my playlist. It was like, we were living different versions of the nineties. It was really, really funny. Cause mine was like Britney <laughs> Spears. Cause I'm a, we're, we're a little bit, a, there's a little bit of an age difference there. Pretty, whatever, Britney and like, you know, Brandy and Monica and all that and all of that, and, you know, and she had a little bit more of a punk pop vibe um, to her stuff, which is great. Like it all, it all, we all sort of like pulled it all together and did different vibes, but yeah, we start with a playlist and yeah, we just work with our composer, but I do think it's an absolutely critical component. You're in audio. Audio is a big part of it. And creatively, like it's got to be on point to drive home the sort of vibe of the show and to really immerse people in the story. I mean, I cannot, I cannot overstate how much time is spent on each of our shows on making the sort of composition work within the realm of the show. <laughs> I mean, I could talk about that forever. So feel free to stop me. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of it, though. I was thinking about it a little bit. And it's like for our Decoded Horror channel, we use some stuff that is, you know, is just public domain free for anybody to use. But it's like the moments that we choose to use that is what matters, I think, because it's like I think we have like two or three different people who have contributed music to that podcast. And it's always a matter of like, do any of these three composers vibes match this scene and or is it like a jokey commercial kind of moment that needs just kind of like a da -da 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 -da, you know kind of like mm -hmm. goofy. and then if you choose like if you're intentional and you pick and choose where you're gonna kind of put those i think that that's to me it's like in almost all walks of life it's the hybrid right like you know, I have like a digital camera and I put vintage lenses on it. Like there's always something that you have to do that's kind of hybrid, like a little bit where it's like, I want analog, like I turn my autofocus off, like all of that. Like there's a lot of things about modern cameras that I don't necessarily want, but I do want the ease of use, right? <laughs> so yep, it's like yep. you almost have to always, but I want the vintage look, right? So you always have these kind of struggles where you sort of have to take the time to make this hybrid that's very uniquely yours. But I think that when you take that time, you're all the better for it. Like it's noticeable, even if people can't pinpoint exactly what is noticeable about it. I think that it's something that really does completely change the vibe. If it's not there or if that intentionality isn't there, I think that that's like a huge problem. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Anybody that's, especially in horror fans are some of my favorite fans because the detail work they will notice. It's like, oh yeah, uh, yes, 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 yes. Everything to everything that you said. And, and <laughs> I, I, I just think that the masters of horror, you know, whether it's audio radio plays or whether it's, you know, like John Carpenter, you know, like that kind of like, they understand how important, I mean, even Jaws, right? Like a very easy argument could be made that, the actual soundtrack to that movie. There is no, the shark broke down. I mean, that's the legendary like story, right? About that movie is the shark literally wasn't mm -hmm. working. So they had this like sound, they had this like little composition that was the shark. The shark is only on screen for like three seconds of the movie. Mostly right. the movie is just that sound. And it's the same thing with, yes, no, Friday the 13th. I think there's the on-screen time is like literally one right. minute and all you get is like for the whole movie. Oh, and that's all no, you needed. Right. Yeah. Because it's like, 
yeah there's like this the like layered screaming in the background but it blends with the wind in nope that makes you just be like what's going on and then you see like the characters looking around and you're like yeah <laughs> like this is so much for me so yeah please sorry i was just like oh right and like other times <laughs> like, no other really times i mean that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, if you look back at, I mean, some of the most legendary, I, I think. Suspiria, you know, right? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. You look back in the, and the, and the, and the sort of music, what well, we, I call it, it's like their musical signature, you know, Jaws or Friday the 13th or, you know, whatever, however you want to slice it and dice it. I mean, it is a critical component of those characters because a big part of horror is if you show the villain, you know, aliens. I mean, I don't know. I could go on. You know, if you show the villain yes. the entire movie, it's like, womp, womp, you know, like it, it just sort of like loses its its <laughs> momentum. Um, and so, yeah, I think horror in particular, you really, and, and it could just be three seconds of an original clip. Like that's what I would actually say to, if, if anybody's listening to this podcast that's thinking about doing, like jumping into audio fiction, I would say, you know, it doesn't need to be a John Williams level score of like 20 minutes of a full orchestra. It's the simplest things. And I think Jaws is a great example of that. It's something that's just, it could be a singular instrument or a little bit of a mix between some weird dialogue and wind and water or, or you know, for Lethal Lit, you know, the town was this like beat up town. And so we, we use the sound of like rusted metal, the creaking of rust was one of the oh, sounds yeah. that we integrated into the Lethal Lit composition. And I just think, get creative, get weird with it, because the littlest things can be the scariest things. So especially for horror, for that genre in particular, take the time to come up with an audio signature, especially for your villain. You, I mean, I, you love to have oh, a yeah. hero signature as well, you know, but obviously, you know, needing, needing a villain signature, I think is critical, whether it's visual or audio. Yeah. Like, have you learned nothing from Disney movies, right? <laughs> like, it's like the villain always has these, like, absolute bangers, like, every time. And you're just like, oh, no. Oh my God. It just, it happens all the time. Like, I was even just, while we were talking, like, I was thinking about all the Hitchcock movies and, like, those incredible soundtracks. And then you have, like, yeah, it's just endless. Like, I was thinking about Eyes Without a Face and how, like, that movie really only has, like, that one two maybe super recognizable songs but it's like every time you hear this like you see this woman she's driving at night there's a body in her trunk and it's just like this jarring like kind of carnival sounding music that's like playing the whole time and it's just like that's what makes the i mean it's like the body in the trunk is scary right but like that could have been diffused because it's mostly she's taking this body she's dumping the body but then she's just driving away like nothing ever happened so this like kind of jarring discordant music over that where she's acting like she's doing a totally normal thing we don't see the body at first right and like that's just it's uh yes now we have come up with the fifth podcast that we would like to come back for. <laughs> yeah. So I'm having a great well, time yeah. talking to you. So, oh, no, um, you too. This is so very fun. Very fun. Yeah. Yeah. I always, it's just like, give me five things that we mutually love and it's over. You know, like this will just go for hours. But I oh. wanted to talk about one thing that we do mutually love. 
before we, you know, kind of wrap things up. I know that we're getting past time, but um, if you have a moment, I would love to talk to you about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because <laughs> you <laughs> brought well, that's this just up. A, that's just it's, another whole podcast, but yes. Uh. I know. I was going to say very specifically, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is a franchise that just goes in all directions, right? Yeah. And so I was curious when you mentioned that, it was alongside other things like you were, we've, we talked a lot about, you know, the Batgirl stories from back in the day where it's like, we didn't get enough, but you know, you and I roughly same age. And so definitely new Oracle, right. Growing up. So Oracle to me is like untouchable. That whole era of Barbara Gordon is absolutely incredible. There's moments that aren't that great, I guess, but overall, like that is a great character. And that was like the best idea of where to go with that character. Not to be like, you know, like now Batgirls is going and like, there's a few other things. She's doing really interesting stuff now. But I think that Oracle was really kind of the thing that made her for me. And then I was thinking how Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is like such a thing where you were talking a lot about you can place them anywhere. And I was just talking to uh, Jamie Rutante from the Archie comics line. And what she was talking about was Archie and how like you can drop Archie in the horror universe, you can drop Archie in superhero world. And like, no matter where you put Archie, those characters are all going to click and work. And it's just going to be magic every single time, Not, you know, varying degrees. But like, it's definitely something where it's like those archetypes are just so iconic, right? And so I was thinking about how Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles kind of applies to that because they are, you know, such an independent project that it starts as a comic book that's just kind of like uh, a lot of people that like will call it like a ripoff of Daredevil which I actually think is like one of the most dismissive things that you could possibly <laughs> say it's yeah. like a one page yeah. throwaway moment in that original yeah. comic like yes. get over yourselves right like it's like people just have to have like a, got a gotcha on like everything right but I was thinking that that original story you know it's this like very kind of like zine style like kind of like you know friends making a sort of uh you know like flaws and all right there's like all kinds of flaws even even through the entire teenage mutant ninja turtles you talk about like a little a franchise that has baggage it definitely has baggage right <laughs> yes. but you also have this these characters that they just like it's so strong because they just have these kind of basic archetypes that have we've gotten to know them as more complicated as time has gone on because a lot of characters have explored them more and i was just i don't know i was just thinking about that and i was like yeah teenage mutant ninja turtles that makes sense with eep <laughs> like i was just kind of like noticing all of these parallels between them and see because it's like i would have been like yes of course you love batgirl right like i would have listened to like lethal lit and been like absolutely right like teen girl detectives absolutely this all makes sense and then teenage mutant ninja turtles and I, actually the scream franchise too those were both ones where i was like I wouldn't necessarily have been like, yes, absolutely, like immediately, like I might not have guessed that, but they're ones that kind of are adding this like extra context for me. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I was just curious, do you think that obviously, like I said, you list it as like one of your big inspirations, like right here on the EEP site. So I was curious how it kind of, how did it inform EEP, I guess, to love Ninja Turtles? <laughs> well, <laughs> to try to keep it under an hour, I would say this. I mean, similar to what we talked about a little bit earlier with the way Batman or even Batgirl, to a certain extent, there's like a stretchiness. Ninja Turtles, 
the one of the reasons why it's my favorite franchise, not only I, I obviously naturally was interested in it growing up. Um, timing so wise, we, right? Because timing it was everywhere. was everywhere. And then, and then I think importantly, um, I, I mean, I could spend 7,000 hours talking about Ninja Turtles, but importantly, I was interested in Ninja Turtles during a period of time where girls were still supposed to be interested in Barbie. Like we can just use Barbie as an example, but I didn't want Barbie. I wanted the Ninja Turtles pizza wagon that shot (laughs) slices of pizza out of the wagon. And I had Raphael come to my birthday party. I I was always, you know, I was always a Raphael. Like I felt like I was somebody that was like a little bit, a little bit sassy, you know, but like, but at the end of the day, again, uh, problematic, right? There's no girl turtle. So I'm Raphael. I'm not like whichever awesome, badass, <laughs> sassy lady character, right? So in, in terms of jumping off of the types, when I, when I say, oh, the types of characters and stories that I wish I had seen growing up, it's like Ninja Turtles is such a great example of a totally ridiculous, like that's one of the other things I love about it, which I think you can see as a through line throughout the EEP IP is that we love amazing stories, we love amazing characters, but also I'm not a person that generally likes to take myself so seriously. Um, and that is the that is Ninja Turtles, right? There is a wink and a nod mm-hmm. to Ninja Turtles, to Scream, Lethal Lit, even Nikki or or, or or you know Hexel, where I say, oh my god, this logline is so ridiculous, but we had to do it. That's the Ninja Turtles of it all, where it's just. Having yes. the confidence of uh, of not being afraid of your most ridiculous ideas, I would say is one of my favorite aspects of Ninja Turtles. And then also taking those ridiculous ideas and saying, well, it's not like a group of dudes and then the girl is the like straight person, like April O'Neil is like, oh, but the turtles, you know, or whatever. I don't love April O'Neil. I mean, <laughs> not that we, don't, we don't all love a yellow jumpsuit, but you know, it, it, I just think... <laughs> that there's that and you'll see with the EPIPs it's a team and I think one of the reasons also surfing back to Archie you know one of the reasons why Archie can work and be stretchy similar to Batman or Ninja Turtles is that it plays off these archetypes and once you put different coats of paints on these archetypes that are very consistent no matter what time period you're in you know once you realize that that you're jump it's, it's like a jump off I think really Archie sort of figured itself out once they started doing horror and, you know, Archie, Archie zombies and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I just think Ninja Turtles is, is, is just such a wonderful example of a piece of IP that, and the same thing can be aged up, right? Because to me, the live action, especially the first live action Ninja Turtles movie, a live action. I call it live action. I mean, they were uh, they were in puppet <laughs> costumes or whatever, but I call it live action. The first True. there's yes. a, a darkness. <laughs> there's an absolute darkness to that, and they lightened it up a little bit with Secret of the Ooze, and they brought in Vanilla Ice, and and, and things might have gotten a little bit out of control, but still, that Ninja song in Secret of the Ooze is like iconic anyway. You know, <laughs> so and again, we could have a whole separate thing about that, but. You know, there's a darkness. <laughs> they they turned on the darkness, which was more, to your point, indicative of the original comic, right? There's a darkness to it. They lightened it up for the animated show. Mm-hmm. They went and darkened it again for the movie. And then they lightened it up again. I just think it's this great example of something that's so ridiculous that can also be stretchy. And that's one of the yes. reasons why, as somebody that creates IP today, why I still like love it and look back on it for, you know, sort of inspiration. And I look for elements. And I think, like I said, like the team dynamic between those characters, ultimately combined with the ridiculousness of the concept and the winking, the wink, wink of it, 
is really the magic of Ninja Turtles. And, and hopefully, you know, we've had some success here at EEP. We haven't had yet to be co- to coming soon. Hopefully <laughs> Ninja Turtles level of success. But, you know, that's that's the goal, right, is to create something that has that stickiness. Because ultimately, I mean, to me, the most dynamic parts of Ninja Turtles is the relationship between Leonardo and Raphael and the conflict there. You know, and so mm-hmm. that's kind of complex for for something that's technically aimed totally. towards younger kids. And so that's a lot of what we try to do with EEP, even with our younger projects like Absolute Zeros or even the Curie Society, which are a little bit younger facing the complex relationships between groups of women or, or mixed gender groups. Right. It's not just all dudes. You know, it's like especially nowadays, I think that there's less of like these toys are for boys and these toys are for girls. It's like everything is a little right, bit yeah. mix and match, which is awesome. So then let's have characters and stories reflect the ability to mix and match those types of characters together. And that's what we do. I love, uh, uh, you know, Lethal It. It's like Tig is the main detective, but, you know, Win and Max are right there with her. You know, like I like to say, it's like our Scooby gang. You know, you got to have a team because everybody's bringing something to the table. So I just love telling stories with like teams and, and just the sort of like interplay of different character characterization. But again, just also not taking ourselves so seriously because ultimately we're just making stuff that's supposed to provide an escape for people. And, you know, there should be an underlying message of either, you know, it's like femininity or commentary on femininity or, or LGBTQ issues or whatever is the sort of commentary on media. Like I love for our IPs to have some sort of underpinning to them that it's not just this thing exploded because that feels <laughs> a little like empty to me. But yeah, just like, again, I, I could go on and on and on about the Ninja, oh. <laughs> about Ninja Turtles, but, but let me know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think I'll say that the last, like the last five years, they have had Rise of the Ninja Turtles and then they had the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comics by Sophie Campbell. And I think that that really proves your point because the Sophie Campbell comics are very nuanced and like just kind of fascinating and kind of work as how do the Ninja Turtles interact with this larger city. Right. And like, you know, Splinter was deceased. I don't know if that's still true, but in the beginning of the run, Splinter had died and like the brothers had been torn apart by it. Right. And to me, that's just like, it's complicated, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. there's this level of, you know, complexity that you didn't expect from the Ninja Turtles, even as somebody who's been reading them for so long. But then you also have something where Rise of the Ninja Turtles is like one of the most high quality Ninja Turtles projects ever. It's explicitly designed for young kids, I think, like from what I can tell. And they also, they had a comics version of it that was one of my favorite comics. Like it was just absolutely incredible. Again, totally aimed for children, you know, and that means nothing because we all read at all ages at this point but it's just kind of an interesting thing to me because it's like as you're saying it's like they can really go in any direction so I do appreciate that you know you you took the time to talk to me about all of this stuff because I'm absolutely fascinated I think that EEP is doing a lot of incredibly interesting stuff you're working with great creators people who we've had on the pod you know people who we like we're always following their work regardless so it's Kind of just interesting, uh, you know, just to hear kind of, I guess, like the behind the scenes from it. This is definitely a podcast that could easily go on five to six hours without, <laughs> I think, either of us getting tired from what I can tell because we're both Raphaels, right? So I think that <laughs> this might be a good place to call it. But I was going to say, you know, uh, I just appreciate having you on. This has been a really fun conversation. And uh, yeah, thanks for being here. Awesome. No, thanks for having me. This is this was great. Super fun. I mean, yeah, I just 
what can I say? Like I, I got into this because I, I, I love like the history of IP and creating new IP. So this is a great forum for, for me. I could <laughs> talk about it forever, but yeah, thanks for having me. And yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll do it again at, at some point. Yeah, I would love that. So I wanted to ask you to share with our listeners where they can find your work, where they can find EEP, how they can support, you know, all of all of the things. So yeah, it's eepuniverse.com. If you head there, you'll be able to click through all the different IPs that we talked about on today's show. We're at eepuniverse on all of the socials, on TikTok and Instagram and YouTube and all the places. Um, so yeah, just go there and find whichever, you know, it's like, it's like Baskin Robbins, find which flavor you want to check out first. You know, you want a murder <laughs> mystery. All of our podcasts actually are available on every major podcast platform, Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, all of our podcasts are available. So check out Lethal Lit, See You in Your Nightmares, Daughters of DC, Nikki Fix, um, and coming soon, uh, Bump Set Juliet. Curious Society is out. Please check it out. It's, we consulted with 20 different female scientists to create the characters in that to make it authentic mm. to the experience that these women went through coming up through the ranks of actually being like the only woman in the room during in all these ridiculously awesome scientific fields like robotics and just cool cool stuff cool people cool stuff so check out the carry society volume two coming soon and absolute zeros is coming out in the spring as well so lots of fun stuff uh, lots of fun stuff on the horizon <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say that we did kind of stick to like an overview for the most part, but each of these projects could easily be its own interview. So definitely everybody check out EEP and stay tuned to what's coming out because it sounds like it's going to be a lot, actually. <laughs> so I'm excited to see what comes, uh, you know, in 2024, 2025, all the way into the future. So thanks for being here. And thanks to, of course, my co-hosts who aren't here today, Essie Flinor and Monica Estrella Negra. Thanks to Kate Warner, who is our sound engineer. Thanks to Katie Taylor, who did our music. And thank you to, of course, all of our listeners. If you want to support what we do, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash queerspec. And also you could go buy those decoded anthologies I talked about and you could follow the decoded horror channel. There's maybe 17 other things you could do <laughs> to support us. I'm not sure. We've got a link tree, you know, like God bless link tree because it really helps all of us who do 700 different projects. But yeah, thanks to you for being here. Uh, follow everything and, you know, we'll see you in your nightmares, frankly. <laughs> so, you know, talk to you all soon. Bye. listening to bitches on comics distributed by realm your portal to another world listen away find more shows like bitches on comics by following realm on apple podcasts spotify or at realm.fm thank you for listening to bitches on comics we are a bi-weekly podcast where we talk to your favorite comics and pop culture creators and critics about what matters to them in comics and pop culture, as you might have guessed. You can follow us on Twitter at, at @bitchesoncomics and on Instagram at, at @bitchesoncomics. Our website is brace yourself, bitchesoncomics.com. If you go there, you can listen to any of our episodes and we've got other shit that we put on tabs. I don't remember what it is. I am in charge of updating the website, however, so good luck. <laughs> Thanks for the heads up. I'll go to this website now. 
If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also support the podcast by joining us on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash queerspec to learn more. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor, and you can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. I'm Monica Estrella and you can find me at www.audreysrevenge.com or on Twitter at Audrey Revenge. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Six girls. I'm Cassie Waters. Bridget Nilsson. Mariella Williams. I'm Gloria Smith. I'm Annabelle Crow. I'm Nadia Olson. One book. Light fades, dark ascends, and whisper in shadow. And a demon from hell. Calling Darkness. Available wherever you listen to your podcasts.